On this episode of the Wellward Way podcast, we talk about the transition from military to civilian life and how mental health care is needed to be addressed by all, not just some. Hi, welcome to the Wellward Way podcast, where we empower our patients with knowledge about pain, both physical and emotional, to give you the tools that you need for optimal health. Hi, I'm Dr. Donish, the medical director of Wellward Medical here in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. James Escaloni, and uh, Dr. Etheridge is our guest for today. Thank you for having me back. He's our latest uh, clinician to join the Wellward team and a former military man. You were a paratrooper, correct? Yes. Yes, I was. And when were you in the military? So I was on active duty from 2002 to 2006. And during that time, you served a few missions abroad, didn't you? Yes, yes. I did uh, three total combat deployments, uh, one to Afghanistan and two to Iraq. That's a, a lot of service that you provided for the country. We value not only your knowledge and, and interest in, in medicine, but also your commitment to serving the entire nation. Thank you. Now, one of the reasons that we really wanted to talk to you about this concept for this show is that you've got a wonderful perspective of being a former soldier, a former paratrooper, who's really seen a lot of interesting and probably challenging things. But then you've got the perspective of a caregiver as a physician right now. Mm -hmm. And you can speak to both sides because many of your former colleagues probably can't be able to see that second side of things. And we'd really like your input about how is it that people can transition well to civilian life from their stance and uh, former career as a soldier. Well, I think it's challenging no matter how you approach it, whether you were a, a short-timer like I was or people who have stayed in for an entire career and then transition. There are plenty of challenges um, to transitioning to civilian life from something so basic as um, just being used to the rigid structure and regimented day-to-day of being in the military and coming to the civilian world where it's nothing like that, people don't behave the same, to the individual challenges that one faces after experiences overseas. We'll put it like that, um, because they touch everybody just a little bit differently. I've always been fascinated by the physiology of human behavior. Like uh, we've talked about before, how some of the things that you experience in the military shape just what gives you a sense of reward, what gives you a sense of vitality. And having not served in the military myself, but valued veterans, my parents were worked at the VA for years before they started their own practice. I was always fascinated by what it is that people get a rush out of, what they get a sense of reward out of. And I anticipate in the military, part of it is just the sense of duty and what you're getting in serving other people. But part of it, I imagine, is also the rush and the excitement of what you're going through. And whenever I think along those lines, chemicals in the brain that give us that sense of reward like dopamine and serotonin, what I call the happy juices, they're provoked by things that generally people think of as senses of reward, like a sense of fulfillment or duty or responsibility 
or the excitement of going down a roller coaster, the excitement of going, jumping out of a plane, mm-hmm. and you compound that with the fear and the anxiety and the relief when you're done with a, a taxing mission, I imagine there's a lot of chemical effects in the brain that are taking place while you're serving in the military. Absolutely, and I think the I think your brain just gets used to it from from every aspect, um, whether it be the general sense of service uh, to others, the the community of it. Um, I think was probably one of the biggest things that was a challenge when separating from service was that you're used to this community where everybody is willing to go above and beyond for the guy next to him and you come to the civilian world where for most people it's you're looking out for number one and that's hard to adapt to when you're used to when you're used to that sense of community and service to others Um, but at the same time you know on the on the other side of the coin is the experiences of the job itself when it comes to whatever is seen on deployment or the the excitement of certain little things like jumping out of planes um, those are big big rushes of adrenaline that really light up those receptors in the brain and you get used to that especially you know i've heard a lot of people compare service overseas to being kind of like a drug um, that you're you're always on and you're always at a heightened sense of of things and then when you come home it's like the carpet's just yanked out from underneath you and it's it's really hard to get back into the day-to-day living of oh i have these bills to pay and i have to vacuum the living room tomorrow and stop for gas you know just the little things that that seem inconsequential at the end of the day that's really interesting because bring up two points the first is that those experiences you said are like a drug they're not like a drug they actually are a drug Mm. because the chemical soup that gets released when you're in those day-to-day action events is not unlike the rush that we get when you get this uh, jolt of any kind of substance of abuse Mm -hmm. because they're triggering releases of chemicals in the brain that mimic the actual experiences that you're getting on a daily basis as a, a military serviceman. But the other thing that you said that really struck me is when you're in the military, you have this beautiful camaraderie and companionship and this unifocal center of attention for literally everybody that's there around you in that moment. And that's to make the mission or to survive or to save each other. It's a very focused but very action-oriented series of events. Now, transition that to civilian life there is a lot of ambiguity in day-to-day living. Mm. We go to a job, we punch in, we do the things, do the tasks that we're instructed to do. But when we come out of that career environment, you have family, you have obligations, you have dinner choices, you have weekend planning. Like All of this is 
very ambiguous by comparison to the rigid, regimented, day-to-day operation and mission orientation within the military. Ambiguity is something that is very difficult to deal with. I always tell patients that if you're in a limbo state where you're not sure if you're going to get better or you're not sure you're going to get worse, if you're in a limbo state of financial consequences, like if I make this decision, is it going to be better or worse in a relationship? Are we working? Are we not working? Ambiguity is a whole lot harder to deal with than certainty, even if certainty is a negative. Mm-hmm. What I was thinking about when you said that camaraderie, I've never been in the military, but I think about if I talk to people about wrestling or Brazilian jiu-jitsu, something like that, they kind of understand like how you kind of miss just kind of grinding somebody's head into the mat. And we, and we say that in the most collegial <laughs> and fun manner. We're not trying mm-hmm. to hurt somebody. It's just kind of part of that thing. And unless you've got somebody who's been through that experience, there's kind of a loneliness with that. And I can imagine for a lot of people who've transitioned out of the military, they don't have somebody to just describe that knowing energy of, it's great to be able to just, I just want to go kick down that door and just blow something up. That's something you said the other day that right. really struck me. The other thing you said was, I miss feeling like somebody's about to shoot me or getting shot at. Right. So there's these two major things that I think that are the biggest transition points for people coming out of service, especially combat veterans. And that is, one, that sense of constantly being on point, um, that constant adrenaline rush, that is something that I have seen people both do a very good job and do a very poor job of chasing after separation to find that rush that they're never really going to get again. Um, And I think acceptance of that is is huge in the transition. But also that sense of community. I think you get used to one community, it gets hard to fill those shoes once you're out and in the civilian world, for some of us anyway that you start to feel isolated and isolation is is a killer mission and purpose are important to every single one of us whether we mm. realize it or not our identities are forged around a sense of purpose or utility or legacy whatever you want to call it we feel lost if we don't have a sense of purpose mm. and when you accustom to Uh, having that sense of purpose dictated to you like you're here to serve yes that's first and foremost but now your service is broken down into very delineated instructions very defined instructions when you go from that kind of a rigid environment where those instructions are are laid out to you and you go into an environment in which now you have to make those those decisions of creating structure, creating purpose, creating a community that can rally around similar purposes for which you stand for. That loss of structure to the ambiguity is very difficult to harness and, and feel good about on a day-to-day basis. Right. And I think people will struggle with having that structure fed to them and then going into an environment where they have to create it themselves. Not everybody is built in such a way that, that they find it easy to create that kind of structure. Yeah, it's, um, not, it's not like you're in the middle of a mission 
and you have to think about okay i need to take dance classes to fill my evening times right, mm-hmm. like right. You're, <laughs> you you are defined as to what your role and purpose is yes whereas when you come into civilian life now you you have the autonomy but sometimes that autonomy can be scary because it comes with ambiguity absolutely now, one of the things that's really common in the medical world, after you've gone through some sort of procedure, there's discharge planning. Mm-hmm. Was there anything like that for you as you were getting out? So, they tried really hard. Um, and from what I have heard and read, it has just continued to get better and better over the years. But we're talking, you know, four years into the war on terror conflict where they were still trying to wrap their heads around concepts like traumatic brain injuries and you know previously PTSD was just known as Gulf War Syndrome and and it presents itself differently with each generation you know back in World War One, World War Two, we had shell shock Um, and then it then they got kind of a more understanding of it from the Vietnam era, and then it became Gulf War Syndrome, and it's it's evolved, both in our understanding and in its presentation in the population. Um, it's interesting because we're looking at two layers. We're looking at what people experience, the what I call the existential element which is what our day-to-day experiences are, what our perceptions, our self-awareness, our concept of identity, what we view ourselves. Like those are all very abstract elements, the touchy-feely stuff Mm -hmm. of this transition. But there's also the brain, the physiology, the chemistry. And when we're talking about Gulf War syndrome, PTSD, shell shock, all of those different things, we're, we're really talking about two layers of events in an individual. One is their experiences, their self-perception, the existential element, and the other is the neurological changes, the chemistry of the brain that changes, the, the repetitive cycles that are set up or the, the neurological loops that are set up and, and continue. Mm-hmm. And the question that has long been unanswered is how do we help these individuals best? Where healthcare has often struggled is in these watershed areas where you're combining multiple disciplines, like that existential element is really psychology, and the neurophysiology and chemistry is psychiatry and neurology. How do we bring these two disparate worlds together so that they're collaborating and working together in resolving some of the conflicts that individuals feel but really don't have the language or awareness of what's happening both on that existential as well as the neurophysiologic planes Mm -hmm. and i think identity is is absolutely huge because these issues you know just like chronic physical pain i think chronic emotional pain chronic mental health disparities can really attack a person's sense of identity and break that down over time. Uh, And I think, you know, some of the things that are offered now, I wish I had found early on. Uh, It took me years to realize that what I struggled with boiled down to a 
deep-seated survivor's guilt. And I see people come through the clinic and, and go through these, these, especially the ketamine sessions, where they have that, that space to step back and process that feeling without the judgmental thoughts surrounding it. Like I said, it took me years to come to terms with all of that and to really process it in a, in a manner that it needed to be processed. And I think that some of the some of these therapies um, would have been so incredibly incredibly beneficial for me. I was one of the lucky ones that that pushed on through. But there's a lot of people that get stuck. They get mm-hmm. mired down in in the process of it all and they don't do well with traditional talk therapy and they don't respond well to medications and I, I think that the newer therapies like ketamine and stellate ganglion and stellate ganglion blocks yes absolutely can provide them the space that they need to readjust you mentioned physical pain and emotional pain there's this neuroscientist who does functional MRIs meaning looks at the brain and sees what parts of the brain light up with different forms of suffering. And whether you're talking about physical or emotional, what's fascinating is the same parts of the brain light up. In fact, it was very hard for them to distinguish if somebody is experiencing physical pain or emotional pain just by looking at the functional MRI studies. Mm. What we underestimate is how much our physiology is affected by emotional pain like we're not just dealing with you know mood or something you can power through with will we're dealing with actual physiologic changes in the brain in the body in the way that our autopilot functions uh, operate all of that can be affected whether we're dealing with physical or emotional pain mm-hmm. now you bring both of those issues together in one individual and unless you're really teasing it apart from this multidisciplinary multi-perspective process in medicine where we've combined these watershed disparate fields these fields that are connected but don't really overlap unless you're bringing all of that together in one person in an integrated fashion it's very easy to have a picture in which it's a connect the dot scenario that the docs never get enough connections to really see the bigger picture. Right. So if you were to talk to yourself, let's say you come in to see yourself as a patient right now, and you're able to give yourself in the past some sort of treatment, therapy, coming out of military service into the civilian life, what are the top things you would be trying to recommend for you as a patient I mean, I think it's a it's a stepwise approach, but to reassurance of all of all the available options is is key. I think there are a lot of people out there that traditional medication and talk therapy will work, but there is still even more that you hit a plateau or a brick wall with those therapies. And like I said earlier, I wish that I that ketamine treatments had been on my radar, that stellate ganglion blocks had been on my radar years ago uh, because it could have saved a lot of time, effort, and um, emotion. 
This is such an important topic, and I'm glad that we're spending time with it. You're, you're such an asset, Chris, because you bring so much awareness and knowledge to what we do and how we operate. I'd really love to talk about this in more detail, and maybe next time what we can do is break down some of those novel approaches like stellaganglion ketamine and how we use it to complement that existential element of recovery as well as the physiologic element of recovery. I think that would be a really good show. I think a lot of people would be interested in that. I know I would. I'm here for it. All right. WellWord is more than a clinic. It's a movement that we are creating in healthcare where we're integrating different services and sciences to get the best outcomes possible for patients. If you're someone who struggles with mood or adjustments from either military to civilian life or a bad breakup to a healthy relationship or a financial breakdown to finding your financial future again, any of those major transitions in life that have an impact on your sense of identity and who you are, there are services and resources that can help you navigate and find clarity because every individual deserves happy, healthy, growing life. Please find us on our website, wellwordmed.com. Join us on future podcasts and webcasts for your own health and well-being. I look forward to hearing from you again. I'm Dr. Donish. I'm Dr. Escaloni. I'm Dr. Etheridge. We'll see you soon.